Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A hundred years of history teaches unionism one thing. We ain't disposable. We are here for the long term. We are here to stay. No surrender. We're now for unionism. Unionism has choked down its culture and I can't think being repeatedly disrespected and demeaned. We have had enough! The Northern Ireland Census told us there are more Catholics here than Protestants. This is a day the unionist founders of Northern Ireland would have been confident would never happen. Catholics outnumber Protestants for the first time. It told us there are more British-only people than Irish-only, but only just. It was greeted by some nationalists as boosting the case for a border poll and a united Ireland. Sinn Féin says the census results are an indication that a story change is underway. Others disagree with that, but most nationalists seem to think that the census presents a case for changing the look and feel of Northern Ireland. I mean, this is something unionism could never expected in its centenary year. Unionists say Catholic doesn't mean nationalist, and that the nationalist vote has been static since the Good Friday Agreement. But commentators across the board believe that unionism must attract wider support to secure the future of the union. I think that given the shrinking unionist vote, the shrinking Protestant base, as it were, this is going to accelerate in the years to come. What direction should the unionist parties be plotting to keep Northern Ireland in the union? Should they be reaching out to Catholics, or should they take a harder line? I spoke to veteran unionist commentator Alex Keane. Alex, I know it's a very general question, it's a very open question, but what is the mood in unionism? I, I, I think it's probably despondent, maybe sums it up best, um, simply because it's not, the, I mean, if you look at the census figures and the election figures in May, um, they didn't come as a shock, because I think for some time now, and we're going back maybe over a decade, unionism has known, all of it, political and electoral unionism and the political parties have known that the, the figures are not stacking up in their favour. They knew that the results were going to start getting harder and harder to defend or excuse or brush away. And I think that's what we're, I think that's the position we're at. In terms of psychology of all this, you have to go back, I think, you know, if, if you back over the past 50 years, Kieran, I'm sorry, you know, it's not a history lecture, but just you go back to that moment in March 1972 when Stormont was prorogued. You then go to the, the, the bringing down of Sunningdale. If you go to the Anglo-Irish Agreement, the Downing Street Declaration, so many things coming right up to date with the, with, with the protocol. 
unionism always believes, always, always, always believes it is being let down by someone. It has been betrayed. There hasn't been a British government in my lifetime uh, which has not been accused of betrayal by one unionist party or another, and sometimes by all of them at the same time. And that's significantly, no matter how many times they feel themselves betrayed, no matter how many times they feel out of sync, no matter how many times they think the world is raging and raged uh, against them, they still don't seem to be able to sit down and work out a strategy to deal with it. I, I remember sitting in the, the room when Martin McGuinness was, was nominated as uh, Education Minister back in in uh, December 1999. And you could feel, you could actually, across the unionist benches, you could feel the frisson, the sudden realisation that something very dramatic had changed. When McGuinness and Paisley uh, became the Chuckle Brothers, you know, that same sense of frisson. And even with the, when the unionists lost the majority in 2017 and now you have a Sinn Féin First Minister. It's, none of this is coming as a surprise anymore, Karen. That, that, I think that's the, the, the problem with unionism. It's not a surprise, but they're not really working out how to respond to any of this. You mentioned feelings. Are they feelings or facts? Well, I think it's a... But they are facts, you know. When you see certain things happen, and they happen because of democracy, they happen because of elections and so on, they happen because of political realities, those are the facts. But sometimes there's a tendency within unionism to shield itself from the facts, to pretend that it's not really happening, or if it's happened, it's a one-off and it'll go away. And every time I've written about this, as you'll know, for over 30 years, trying to explain where I think the problems may be. And every time you write something, I will get a phone call. I'll get a phone call from a leading unionist. Oh, Alex, that's very gloomy. It couldn't get it couldn't get to that stage. I remember writing 20 years ago. And it's such a half-jokey line. I said, it may get to the point when unionists will actually be grateful for mandatory power sharing, the way the figures are going in terms of votes for, for unionism, because the, the vote is declining. The case is right now, if there wasn't mandatory power sharing or requirement in some form for unions to be included in an executive, an executive could be formed without unions. That is a huge shock to them. So what you need to do instead of complaining that this is the fault of the British government, it's the fault of the Irish, it's the fault of the Americans, it's the fault of the European Union, it's the fault of A, B, C, D and E. What you need to do is gather together, sit down, look at the realities you're going to face, look at the challenges you know, and they know are coming down the line and say, how do we react? How do we get away from the constant knee-jerk, automatic reaction to everything? And actually, how do we get to the point where we are prepared? You spoke, and I've spoken about unionism there. I mean, is, is it an exaggeration to say that unionism has a choice to make? Is it unionism or the union? Because... You've talked about the situation unionism finds itself in, but under the current criteria, there's no chance of a border poll. There's no there's no chance whatsoever of a united Ireland in the in the in the short term, perhaps even the medium term. So 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 what is the problem? The problem for unionism, you, you may be right that the the, the the chances of a border poll are very unlikely right now. The chances of a united Ireland are very unlikely right now. But as I say, looking back over the years, so many things that unionists thought were unlikely have happened. So many moments and Rubicons have been crossed that weren't even considered 10, 15, 20 years ago have been crossed, have happened. I think in terms of, uh, as much as think about unionism, that if you're not prepared, if you're not aware of what's going on around you, 
if you don't have game plans so that no matter what comes, it's not panic, you suddenly go, you move on to the next option. And the one thing I remember, I, I, I won't name a very senior member of the British government at the time of the, the talks processes uh, back in the in the 1990s, said to me, I said, what's the difference I said, between um, unionism and nationalism? And he said, really the big difference, Alex, I found is that nationalists, SDLP and Sinn Féin, they usually have options. You know, if we say to them something is not possible, you know, they they, they will stoke it off a, off, off a piece of paper, but they will let put another piece of paper almost immediately on the table. They're prepared. They, they have thought it all the way through. So the trouble with unions, unions, of all unionist parties, they don't seem to prepare options. So they walk in demanding something. If that is immediately taken off the table for some reason, they huff, they go away. They, 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 they fall out with each other. Sometimes in the room when you're talking to them, they fall out with each other. And I think I think maybe that's what it comes down to, that um, if, if you're dealing at, at that sort of level of politics, if you're dealing about your own future, your own identity, your own constitutional position, you can't walk in there just saying, well, this is it, it's all or nothing. When you know deep down, as Reg MP used to say, unionists walk away from the table in a huff and they always come back usually, whether it's a year later or five years later, they come back and the damage has already been done and they come back weaker. Than, than they were before. And I think maybe that's what it comes down to. You know, it's not that Sinn Féin are brilliant at what they do, and because they, they make mistakes, but Sinn Féin accept their realities and they look at it. They have everything gamed out 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Unionists are lucky to have something gamed out a year down the line. You mentioned the word strategy and I'm, I, I was struck very much by a tweet you wrote um, in, in the recent in recent weeks, he said the union isn't dead, but it does face huge challenges, and it needs to rise to those challenges. Uh, you've mentioned strategy today, so so what would your strategy be um, to rise to those challenges? Now I know you're a commentator uh, rather than an active politician, so I'm being slightly unfair. But what what how would you manage the players in the pitch? No, you, you're, not, you're not being unfair, Karen. It, 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 it's a very valid point. I think two things unionists need to look at. If it just Looking very brief, I won't go into detail, but just on the census figures, you know, they, if you look at the number of people who put British only, that's their identity, you know. And then you look at the number of people who are actually voting for unionist parties. There is a discrepancy there. There are people who describe themselves as British only, but who are quite clearly not voting for any of the unionist parties in elections. Unionists need to ask themselves about that. But the other thing unionism needs to do, and I've, I've, I've said this for years, I've said that unionism is not just the unionist parties. It's not just the three, four, five, six who are on the float at any one time. It's not just the electoral manifestation. It's huge. It's it's the churches. It's it's the it's the orange order. It's civic unionism. It's civil unionism. It's liberal unionism. It, it's, it's hardline unionism. It's traditional unionism. It's loyalism. That's a huge family, huge family. What it has singularly failed to do is sit down, have, have some sort of convention or conference below the radar, sit down and say, the very first question, what does it mean to be a unionist? What does it mean to be a citizen of the United Kingdom? Because I remember arguing a few years ago uh, over things like same-sex marriage and abortion and so on. I said, the reality is you cannot credibly claim that you want equality as a unionist, that you want equality of citizenship with, with your fellow citizens. If you're also saying that what is legal in England, Scotland and Wales is not something we would tolerate here. You need to sit down and work out exactly what it is you want, exactly the, the freedoms, exactly the, the values that undermine, or sorry, underpin your beliefs. And we don't do that. You walk into, take 100 people, sit them in a room who are all unionists, and you ask them, 
Okay, here's a post-it note. Just write five things that matter to you. I guarantee you will get a huge plethora of, of different, often contradictory and competing views of what it is to be union. That's why we always have so many unionist parties. That's why we have so many fragments of unionism. That's why we, we constantly argue with each other. That's why just, was it two years ago when the four leaders of the union got but storm it and talked about you know uniting together to work against the protocol within a week within a week they were fighting each other at the unionist rallies which is to unite them they were fighting each other what unionism it doesn't need a political leader to work this out but if the union our unionism if you like is to survive then they need to make sure that they send out a coherent message they send out an agreed message and they send out one that doesn't just appeal inside the camp but actually says to people this is what we mean. This is our belief. And, you know, it's not as bad as you think it is. You know, what you've said there strikes me as being very similar to what a plethora of commentators have said over the last week. Um, Maliki or Doherty, for, for example, unionism paying the price for never trying to win over Catholics. We can discuss that. Suzanne Breen, the numbers don't lie. Unionism needs to change its attitude if it wants Northern Ireland to survive. Sam McBride, if unionists insist on Northern Ireland being British and British only, it can't and won't survive. So in terms of commentators, for example, uh, there seems to be, people seem to be coming together around a common theme, but how how do you go about that, uh, attracting people who, Catholics, for example, or cultural Catholics, who are obviously practically, who are pro-union, I think, you know, how mm-hmm. do you bring them behind the unionist cause? Or, or perhaps you don't need to do that, because many of the statements I have in front of me from unionist parties seem to think, well, it, it doesn't really matter about who they vote for, because we seem to be pretty sure that on the day of a referendum they would vote for the United Kingdom. Well, I I, I would be cautious. I, I, I'm always cautious with figures. I don't think you can bank any vote nowadays. You know, British only, you can make an assumption. If somebody says in their identity thing, British only, you can make a fairly safe assumption that in a border poll, they will vote to stay in the United Kingdom. If they vote, if, they, if, if their preference is um, uh, British only, British or, you know, Northern Irish only, it's again, it's a, you can make a reasonable assumption that the majority of people who make that those two identities are going to vote uh, for the union. You can't make that assumption on anything else. If someone is not willing to vote for a unionist party who, who may identify as Northern Irish but isn't voting unionist, and we can see it, the vote unionist vote has declined when the population has grown. So there are people who are un- pro-union but not unionist. So no unionist party should have the arrogance to assume that people will 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 back their version of the union when they're not even willing to vote for them. And I think that it, it's it's you know with Sam and Suzanne and all the others. I remember writing an article in 1979. I was a young man just left university. It was on the leadership of of, of who would be the next leader of the, the uh, unionist parties to succeed Harry West and the competition was between John Taylor, Jim Mullen, a couple of others. And I I said I thought it was likely to be Jim Mullen, but I also made a case. If the union and unionism is to survive, it needs to reach far beyond. It needs to reach down to my generation. That was 30 years ago. I could write the same column today because we still have this thing. And the trouble with unionism is, is, it is this, we have to get away from the that we just fight with each other. And that's the problem. When unionism picks its enemies, it doesn't just pick its enemies in Sinn Féin or the IRA. It spends half its time looking over its shoulders at liberal unionists or Lundy under unionists or rollover unionists. It needs to stay, unless you define what you are, 
and make it clear that what you are and that all of unionism can agree on a set of principles, Karen, then I'm sorry, you will always get to the point where the big fight is with unionists. But it, it, it's, it's red, white and blue on red, white and blue. And I remember a senior Sinn Féin figure telling me once when I asked him about um, how they managed to get some of the... Because they had huge obstacles and hurdles to cross as well back in the 90s. And I said, how do you manage to persuade some of your own people? And he just looked at me and he just said, Alex, we can always rely on somebody within the Unionist Party to do the hard lifting for us. Because as soon as they blame us for something or blame somebody for talking to us, we say, well, this is what we're dealing with. The TUV, the DUP and the UUP all make that point, as I said, that Catholics don't equate to unionists. It, it, it really only seems from Mike Nesbitt's statement and several other people in the UUP that this idea that you said you must reach out to Catholics. But I want to put a different view here completely. And this is from uh, another unionist commentator who doesn't have a democratic mandate, but certainly has a following, and that's Jimmy Bryson. And he says, unionism is constantly expected to water down the union in order to reconcile with those who want to destroy the union. This is the process. It is therefore elementary to understand that the end of this process is Northern Ireland being eased out of the union. That certainly seems that Jimmy Bryson, for example, and I've read other opinions very, very similar, is, is not in the mood for compromising with nationalists in, in order to shore up support for the union. Is, is that a problem? Well, I, it's not a problem in one sense because I, I, I think, I mean, and I'm not disagreeing with Mike, but I'm simply saying I've never seen it as, as the role of, or as a commentator or even of a unionist party when I worked for it, this thing about, oh, we must reach out to nationalists, we must reach out to Catholics, because you cannot turn a nationalist into a unionist or vice versa. So that's a pointless argument. What you need to do from the unionist perspective, if you if you want to keep if you want to keep some of your own people on board, if you want to attract that younger generation from when within what would be uh, what regarded as a, if you like a pro union unionist background, if you want to keep them on board and voting, you have to find a way of presenting your own beliefs, presenting your unionism in such a way that it doesn't seem constantly antagonistic, that it doesn't seem constantly on the attack, but it actually is trying to explain what it is, why we value our continuing membership of the of the United Kingdom. We have to get beyond the, the days when it was just, oh, well, you, you know, United Ireland would, we, would mean this A, B, C and D and counter it with this is why we think the United Kingdom would be better. But the United Kingdom as we know it over the past, over what successive governments have done in terms of the relationships with unionism, over what's happened in Brexit and so on, we can't just say to people, even from similar backgrounds, oh, you know, the United Kingdom is always better. We have to persuade them. We have to persuade our own side as much as anyone else. We have to persuade people in the middle. Those people who describe themselves as just Northern Irish, that's their identity. They're going to have to face a question, is it Northern Irish in the United Kingdom? Is it Northern Irish in the United Ireland? So if those people are thinking on those issues, we have to make, as unionists, have to make sure that the decision they make is that they want Northern Ireland to continue in the United Kingdom. And so, so saying to people, I, I would like to, to reach a point in which you feel comfortable voting to remain in the United Kingdom. Is there anything, is there anything that we could do? Is there something so bad about us that makes you feel so uncomfortable that you couldn't vote uh, for the union? Maybe it's something we're doing. So 
that's an argument worth having, Karen. That is a is a debate worth having as well. But to simply to say we will not do this because that's a form of diluting. You do not dilute your beliefs by taking them into someone else's house. You actually say, I'm here to tell you what I believe. And I, I remember standing in front of about a thousand Sinn Fein people at a conference in Dublin three years ago and to say to them, you know, <laughs> I'm a lot embarrassed, unashamed, unapologetic unionist, you know, blah, blah, blah. And setting out why I believe that so many of them talked to me afterwards and well, you know something, Alex? Why don't unions actually explain this side of their beliefs? Why don't they explain what it is that matters to them? Why the union matters to them? Why the United Kingdom matters to them? Why do all those beliefs and values matter to them? Instead of just ranting and raving about how everyone else is wrong. So that's my approach. It's to say, talk, 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 talk to anyone. One of the things that the SDLP, particularly even people like Matthew O'Toole from the SDLP off the back of the census, uh, were saying, well, Northern Ireland has to change. And you mentioned, like, what would be, what would stop maybe a a pro-union Catholic voting for a unionist party? Well, maybe it could be that that person, no matter how committed they are to the union, may have some connection to Irish culture, Gaelic culture, etc. And that these issues have been really part of a of a culture war culture war for 400 years but in the last uh-huh. generation of course as well and when the SDLP say uh, that they seem to be concentrating now on because of the census figure on the look and feel of Northern Ireland do you think culture wars are only beginning perhaps and is that a good thing for unionism well I I, I think yes I think the, the it was always going to begin um particularly after the Good Friday Agreement, but it is worth bearing in mind, you know, and, and I'm not sure some unions fully understand this, you know, we haven't had, if you like, a unionist government since 1972. Unionists have not been in a position politically to, to, to you know, change or, you know, control the agenda by themselves. And I think there are some, there's, there's some unions who think they do, there's a sense that they, they yearn to go back to those days that, you know, they didn't actually have to, you know, argue with anybody at all. Northern Ireland has changed in my lifetime. It's changed dramatically in my lifetime. And many of those changes I welcome because I think they were important. Because from the minute when I was 18 and voted for, I, I backed Brian Faulkner. It was the first vote I ever had because I believed in power then, which was, a bear in mind, Karen, at 18 years old, say, just after, months after Stormont had been prorogued, for someone like young unionists like me to say, well, actually, the way forward is power sharing. The way forward for Northern Ireland to survive, the way forward for the union to survive is when we create somewhere where we're comfortable working together in some form. But more important than that, if the moment ever comes, and back then, 50 years ago, we, we thought it, I never thought it would even be mentioned again in my lifetime. But I said, even if it's not about winning nationalists over to the unionist cause, we have to create the circumstances when they're not so angry they're not so pissed off with us that if the moment ever comes and they have to make a decision, they'll go, well, do you know, yeah, bits I'm not happy with, but you know something, a lot has changed. I'm comfortable here. I'm comfortable most aspects of the United Kingdom I'm comfortable with and so on. I just think that one of the things we've done over the years, we have, we've, unionism, we've become so insular. We've become so inward looking and almost sometimes unnecessarily and accidentally aggressive in some cases that people look at us. They look at all manifestations of unionism and they just wonder, I mean, are these people even comfortable in their own skins and yet they're asking us to stay in the United Kingdom with them? And if you if, if you like, when people say it's a culture war thing, I just want, uh, and as a dad with, with a 23-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 5-year-old, and, you know, we're all obviously going out to live being after, I, just, I know it sounds soppy in some sense, it's scary, but I want them, whether it's, uh, you know, 
Northern Ireland in a united because this notion that if there's United Ireland, all the problems that have bedeviled Northern Ireland for years would dis disappear. But whatever this little place that I was born in, whether we're, whether it's Northern Ireland still in the United Kingdom or Northern Ireland, which has been changed and become part of the United Ireland, we still have to find a way of living together comfortably. And you know, it's it's not going to be answered by just oh, it's United Ireland tomorrow, everything's sorted, or we're staying in the United Kingdom, everything's sorted. We have to find a way of living with each other with accommodating each other. The fact that, you know, we still have only 7% of integrated schools. The fact that most people um, still live in us and them are areas which are clearly marked as us and them, not just in Belfast, but across the other. And the fact that, and I say this with a sense of sadness, the fact that someone like me, who would be regarded as a fairly moderate unionist, cannot actually say, I have a, you know, a, 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 a wide circle of Catholic nationalist friends, because I don't. And I, I don't know why that's happened, because I, I go to meetings, I talk to people, but, you know, it's I have one, one Catholic nationalist friend who I value very much. But, you know, if you're saying to me, you know, who, who would come to weddings and family things and parties and drink sessions, I couldn't say, yeah, here's here's Malachi, here's Katrina, here's dude. And you know, that worries me, it worries me because of someone like me who wants to, to spread and, and expand and, you know, create this place where we can work together. If even someone like me has to admit, I, I don't have many friends like that, I think that's a worrying thing. Alex, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips were from AP, RTE and the BBC. And if you want more Northern Ireland political content, head over to belfasttelegraph.co.uk with premium content available on subscription for as little as 40 pence a week. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.